0: Hi, this is Malayan Verveer. And this is Kim Azzarelli.
1: We are co-authors of the book, Fast Forward, how women can achieve power and purpose. And you're listening to Seneca Women, conversations on power and purpose, a podcast brought to you by Seneca Women. Katie Couric is one of the most successful women in media. She was the first woman to solo anchor a nightly TV newscast. And for 15 years, she was the incredibly popular co-anchor of NBC's Today Show. Katie has broken news, made headlines, and won just about every journalism award possible. And she's done that while overcoming the gender bias that has pervaded much of broadcast media. Katie sat down with Milan during the Seneca Women Forum at the New York Stock Exchange. Listen to their conversation and hear how Katie deals with the boys club, how she handles critics, and why she's now focusing on creating quality content with purpose-driven partners. And stick around after the conversation to hear our top takeaways.
2: I feel like I'm the only thing between you all in a cocktail. I feel really bad about this, but hi. You're going to be so glad that you're here Uh and stayed for this. We've been
0: talking about transforming culture, and I think there are few people who've had such an impact on our culture as you have, Katie Couric. So welcome, and it's just great to have you here. You know, I was thinking, I spent my mornings with you for 15 years in a row when you were the co-anchor of the Today Show. And when we look at your achievements from best-selling author to award-winning journalist to the co-founder of Stand Up to Cancer, that organization within 10 years has raised a half a billion dollars for scientists and researchers. That's extraordinary. You know, These are the kinds of things we don't know about her. And now she's uh, the head of Katie Couric Media, working on really extraordinary topics that are so important and which you are bringing to our attention and hopefully that we will respond to uh, in ways that we should care more about them. Um, But I want to start with your becoming the first female anchor of a major network, Evening News. And I know, from what I've heard from you in the past, that it was not the easiest job. It was fraught with challenges. In fact, I think you referred to the boys club. And that might be something some of the women in the corporate (laughs) sector can understand. But, But what made it so challenging?
2: Well, I think this, well, first of all, hi, everyone. I'm so happy to see you all and nice to be here. Um, You know, this was 2006, and, you know, I think I was pretty naive. I've been naive, I think, several times throughout my life and career. But I thought, you know, you hear about post-racial, I sort of thought we were post-sexist because I had had such a prominent position on the Today Show. I had seniority uh, Matt was sort of, believe it or not, a little bit of the second banana to me because I had been there longer than he had. And he deferred to me at times, not always. And that's a whole nother Oprah we're not going to get into. Um, but it would be can, interesting. You can read about it in my book, which is coming out in about a year. I'm working on it right now. But, um, you know, I think that Networks have personalities, and at the time, CBS was, I think, the most sort of old-fashioned, traditional, insulated network. I think people kind of bleed CBS. They stay there for their entire career, and it was just very male-dominated. I think also, uh, you know, I was the first female solo anchor of a newscast, and you can't really, I think, overestimate what a shock to the collective system of viewers that was. You know, I was just a very different animal. I was different than, I wasn't raised in the CBS culture. I think the CBS viewer was a little more traditional and conservative, and I was brought in by Les Moonves, which is another Oprah. (laughs) How many men can I mention uh, in this conversation? And then there was Charlie Rose, but anyway, so. So, um, you know, and I think that, uh, that, that people weren't really accustomed to me. And even, you know, I remember, I'm so happy that Nora O'Donnell is getting support from fellow journalists, female especially, and also has Susan Zerinsky at the helm. And I think that's real proof about, of the importance of having women in leadership positions because they set the tone. I think they're more supportive. They get each other more. And I think from the get go, I'm happy that Nora, I think, is going to have a much easier transition, not only because she's been at CBS for a while, but because she has someone like Susan Zarinsky at the helm. But I remember doing the first broadcast, and uh, just the I, I think because it was so novel to see a woman at the anchor desk, they, they, you know, talked about the fact that I wore a winter white jacket after Labor Day. And I'm like, God damn it, it's tropical weight wool, and it's our Armani people. <laughs> and I spent more on that coat than I spent on anything in my entire life. And, you know, my hair, my makeup, even Nora Ephron, which I thought was such a betrayal of my you know, sisterhood, that, you know, she trashed my makeup. And I was like, seriously? May she rest in peace. But Nora Ephron, why are you doing that? And people would say, you know, I didn't have the gravitas to do that job, which I've always decided, in, you know, at the time was Latin for testicles. So, um, <laughs> you know, I, I just... <laughs> Ah, it just it just was really I think I so I realized I was like, wow, we are not as evolved as I thought we were. And so for all of those reasons, and I also think they thought I was this kind of, you know, like Lipton cup of soup. You add me stir and the ratings just miraculously went through the roof. But those things take time and nurturing. And I think when they saw that I it wasn't kind of instant rating success and that they'd have to be in it for the long haul, I don't think they knew how to do that. Um, and I think, you know, I probably made some mistakes, too. I probably didn't ingratiate myself uh, with uh, some of the people who'd been there for a long time. I brought a few people with me from NBC. I mean, study industrial psychology, I think people felt very threatened and insecure about their own positions, which I totally can understand. Um, so. You know, I'm really proud of the work I did. I, I was there for five years. We won a ton of awards. I kind of just powered through. Um, you know, I think my interview with Sarah Palin was very impactful. You're welcome. Um, and And so a lot of the work I, I did there I'm extremely proud of, and, uh, but it was it was a challenge um, at times. What? I remember be coming home and eating dinner with my daughters who were like. I think Ellie and Carrie were, like, maybe 8 and 12 at the time. I'm trying to remember. I can't do – I'm not good with numbers, whoever say. I am not – I would be terrible at your job. But, Ellie, I think I was – you know, we always ate dinner together. That was really important to me, you know. And then when Jay died, when they were 2 and 6, I really wanted to have that family time, and I was – you know, it was after a particular hard day and I was like crying at the dinner table, pathetic, right? And, and uh, you know, because somebody had said something horrible, they'd written something about me, it was just a nightmare. And I remember Carrie, who I think was eight or nine at the time, said, Mom, remember what Samantha says in Sex in the City? And I'm thinking, oh my God. <laughs> I'm the worst mother in the world. She said, if I listened to what every bitch in New York City said about me, I'd never leave the house. And I was like, thank you, Carrie, for making me feel so proud. Um, But anyway... (laughs)
0: you know, the words of children. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but there may be wisdom there for reading dislikes on social media, too. So No, it's whatever. true. It's true. But but I'm wondering, listening to you and your mention of, of Nora now coming in as the second in that position. At has, CBS, but the third at overall has yes. Diane, too. Right. But, but has the landscape changed that much? Has representation changed that much? I have some statistics here that Really make me wonder, are we making progress?
2: You know, I think you've, when you watch television, you watch cable news, I pay attention to diversity and the number of women and to make sh- I do think outwardly we're making some progress. The Women's Media Center, though, I think those are the stats you're referring to, Milan, shows that men still overwhelmingly are dominating the media landscape. And I think what's what is the most important thing is what I mentioned earlier that we need more women in leadership positions. you know S- Susan Zarinsky is is now the mm-hmm. head of, of CBS News. the woman there's a female who's head, uh, the head of Fox News. But in terms of uh, you know other networks, it's still very male dominated at the executive producer level. I think it's still very male dominated and this was the women Medi- yeah. women's media Center mm-hmm. uh, their latest survey that was done in 2019. So I think, you know, only when you have true decision-making opportunities. I think oftentimes leadership positions are put to prop up the guy who is in the leadership position. You know, they're not quite at the very top. And I think many of the men are interested in maintaining the status quo. So I think we have a lot of work to be done in that that department, and I don't want to have to just wait for these guys to die for it to change,
0: nor do we but but most of these statistics basically showed that um, if we're lucky, we've broken thirty uh, percent in terms of uh, the various categories of news anchors and uh, wire writers and social media writers, et cetera. Um, And I think uh, what Gina Davis has been doing, looking at how women are portrayed in movies, for example, uh, and the fact that in any crowd scene, we're 50% of the population, right? but the crowd scenes typically are 30%. So it's like stuck at 30% and that's real progress. It's, yeah, so it's,
2: clearly we have a way to go. It's very insidious too. You know, I did an hour on gender inequality for a series I did for National Geographic called America Inside Out. It's on Hulu. I highly recommend it, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, and I took a look at various social issues. Uh, from Confederate statues to white anxiety and sort of what's going on in, in the, uh, the Rust Belt and this transition to a more technological economy. I looked at what it's like to be a Muslim in America Uh, political correctness on college campuses and beyond. And one of them was a real deep dive into gender inequality. And we talked about all these issues. I went to Harvard and took the implicit association test that Mazarin Banaji administers. And by the way, I crushed it. I have no bias. Thank you. (laughs) I think I kind of gamed it, because I sort of figured out. But I still don't. I think I'm pretty, I, I was aware, oh, you're trying to associate Gardening with women. I'm not doing that so um, But women are, are actually more biased than men in that implicit association test, which is interesting mm. but um, you know, I, I interviewed Gina for that we talked a lot about imagery and one of the movies we looked at uh, they worked with Google to kind of quantify the role of women in movies even shockingly hidden figures is uh, you know the male dialogue is more than the female dialogue, if you can believe that. So there are things that really have to start out from the writers level. And in that hour, Milan, I went and visited Juvie Productions, which is Viola Davis and mm-hmm. and Julian's her husband's production company, to get more diversity in in the pipeline and from the get go. And we were sitting around a table, and it was a very diverse group of people. And one of the African American producers, I said, it's probably important that, you do, that writers don't specify who's gonna play a certain role. I think some people were talking about this. He said, that's right. You know, for a doctor, he, he could be African American or whatever. And I said, but look, you just made him into a he. He could be a woman too. So even people who are working in this space have this, this kind of implicit bias that's the result of years and years of cultural conditioning and years and years of images, you know, being inundated with images. And that's really why I wanted to be the anchor of the CBS Evening News. I wanted little boys and little girls to see that a woman can do that job confidently and competently. And that, you know, it wouldn't be such a novelty and hopefully we'll get more and more women in these leadership positions. And also I had such an impact on the stories we covered, you know, I would say I want to do a, a, a story on dating violence after Yardley Love was murdered at the University of Virginia, where I went to school and Sharon went as well. And, you know, I wanted, to do, I wanted to do a series on sexual assault in the military. You know, these are all stories that were coming from me that a lot of my male counterparts would never think of. And during the 2008 election, I would say to my male writer, why are you describing Hillary Clinton this way. Do you know how loaded and gendered that description is? Well, if I hadn't been there, it would have been, you know, Scott Pelley reading that copy as Jerry wrote it. And I love Jerry and we got along really well. But, you know, a different perspective gives a lot more balance. And and that's why diversity, inclusion, socioeconomic diversity, racial diversity, all kinds of diversity are so important because everyone – has a different perspective. And,
0: and power imbalances, you know, I think for all of the success of the Me Too movement, unless we change some of these power imbalances, we're gonna to continue to have these kinds of problems and those kinds of problems. Uh, but let me ask you, because we were having a vigorous discussion in the green room and we have, I, I don't like looking at that clock over there, but just really, <laughs> really quickly, a, a topic that could take hours, how is it for the journalists today with this changing
2: media? You oh, know, it's, that, it's, inc- it's really hard. Uh, well, I mean, I and what do you think about what's happening? Change, and what's changing on? in what way? Well, in terms
0: of um, not just the, the traditional way the networks have operated, and social media now being so dominant, and having all kinds of opinions being viewed as uh, legitimate journalistic opinions when they're not. Yeah, uh, et cetera. It's a really
2: it's a it's a mindset. very fraught environment, I think, for journalism, journalism right now. I mean, you've got a president who is demeaning reporters on a daily, if not hourly basis um, and calling them enemy of enemies of the people. I think what's really hard is the proliferation of media outlets. Some are very legitimate doing incredible work some are less so, and they all get kind of lumped together. I mean, I don't know how many times I've gone to my iPhone and clicked on something, and I have no idea the media outlet, and I read it, and I'm like, what? Or I see that, you know, I'm reading, I see a thing about, I keep getting Joy Behar's last words. Why am I getting that on my phone? (laughs) Uh, You know, I mean, just the weirdest stuff, and things get repeated, you know, journalism, the... The number of people in newsrooms, because of economic concerns, are, are shrinking, and then people are just rewriting other people's stories, and they're not necessarily going through an editor or any vetting problem uh, process. So, I mean, I think there's a lot of things that are really problematic about the the journalistic lan- landscape. And you know, when I was doing the Today Show, I started in 1991, and you. If you wanted to know what was going on in the world, you turned on the radio or you got your morning paper, you know, hard copy, or you turned on one of the networks to kind of get the latest news. Now, there are just a million places to get it. My daughters never turn on the television. They listen to podcasts. They go to their phones and look at the New York Times or the Washington Post. Or my newsletter, which, by the way, you all need to subscribe to. <laughs> you just have to text four seven four seven four seven, and then you write Katie, and then you sign up, and I'll make your life much easier because I curate all this tsunami of information that we're accosted by every day. And I'd what love a bargain to hear what you you've
0: think. gotten today, just getting
2: that <laughs> news. But anyway, so it's 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 tough, and I also think you know. The, it, the media, it's so bifurcated. There are too many people right. giving their opinions and, you know, people are getting affirmation, not information. They're getting their own reviews views reflected back at them. And it's a very sad state of affairs when my friends say they watch the BBC to get an objective view of what's going on in the world. And I just think sometimes, you know, even though I might agree with some people more than others, I just want to hear... What's going on? And I don't want people to roll their eyes or sigh or harumph or, you know, just carry on that way. And I think on social media, news organizations should should be really careful what their reporters tweet or put out there because there should be some appearance of objectivity. Now, I have to say, in fairness, it's very difficult when you have such an unconventional president. To be totally objective, when some of the things are so um, highly offensive, honestly, just for anyone, and but I do think the polit the politics of personality should be separate from policy. And there's so much time and attention spent on behavior, and so little time and attention spent on, spent on really examining policies and what and big issues like climate change or infrastructure and things like that, that it all feels very it's just exhausting. And I read was reading in a newsletter this morning that there's there's real Trump fatigue. And I don't want people to be disengaged because it's just so stressful and anxiety producing that they stop paying attention. So it's it's complicated. And it's a
0: profound (laughs) problem. And I think many of us will be discussing this for days and weeks and probably months to come. And even though our time is up, I'm going to ask you um, about your media company and what kinds of projects you're involved in now, because we're all eager to hear whither Katie goes next.
2: Uh, so um, well, very, very what, what quickly. kinds of topics are you, are you looking at well, working on? I mean, I think it's actually quite germane to the com- previous conversations, but I'm, not gonna, I'm gonna give you guys the abridged version. Um, Basically, you know, I've done so many things in my career, but I love to work. I'm a little crazy. I just, I, I, I love to be engaged in the world and take part in big, important conversations. So, about a year ago, I started the very originally named Katie Couric Media. Um my husband's it's like a good brand. I, I, hey, that's what he said. And I was like, I don't want it to be called that. He said, just deal with it, use it. It's a good name. So um, my husband John and I, who's very funny on Instagram. You guys should follow him. He's very funny. He's really funny. And he's great. I'm so happy. I don't know why I said that, but yeah. I uh, am. <laughs> we've been married for five years, uh, just last Friday. But um anyway. Uh, We started this company. He's got a finance background. He was a partner at Brown Brothers Harriman. And um, I decided that I wanted to be the boss of me. (laughs) And we're doing a newsletter, a daily newsletter. And then I'm teaming up with companies that I feel reflect my values. I mean, we've heard a lot today. I wasn't here all day or for for all the, the panels, but purpose-driven companies are really on the rise. I have a great relationship with Procter & Gamble and Mark Pritchard and I have been working together on a lot of projects. I noticed Allison didn't mention it during her panel, so I thought I would do that. (laughs) And uh, we did a panel last week with John Legend uh, at Cannes, you know, I, we're, I, I care about a lot of important issues. I care about gender and gender equality. I care about environmental sustainability. I ca- care about criminal justice reform. I care about uh, all kinds of issues that companies now care about as well. The Edelman Trust Barometer, I don't know if anyone mentioned mm-hmm. this today, but 76% of employees... Look to their CEOs to take a stand on important issues, and look to their companies to to usher in change instead of the government. As trust in the government and media institutions has declined, faith in companies, which is sort of ironic, if you grew up, you know, right. where the companies were the enemies and big big business was bad, but now actually big business is really seen as a source for good, and and to change hearts and minds. And again, always cognizant of the importance of images in terms of what people see. If you can't see it, you can't be it. And that's why I wanted to do the evening news. That's why I said to Bryant Gumbel, I'm not doing this job unless there's a 50-50 division of labor because I don't want to be seen as the cute girl who just does, does fashion shows and cooking segments. I cover the Pentagon. I know my stuff. I'm smart. I'm not going to be the second banana. And so I'm working with with companies to do digital series, documentaries. Um, You know, I'm working with Ally Financial, Rally Health, people who, you know, I care deeply about medical uh, issues because of my cancer work. And so I'm creating what I think is really important content that will help address some of the issues that aren't being really covered right. in mainstream media because they're too busy covering sort of the drama of the day. And it's a way for me to continue to have a voice. I've done a lot of documentaries. I did one called Fed Up on childhood obesity, under the gun, about gun violence, gender revolution, about our changing notion of gender identity, and, uh, and to help people understand that new complicated arena and so this is really a continuation of my desire to do content that really matters that people hopefully will be uh, you know enlightened by and will illuminate the very complicated and ever changing world we're living in.
0: So the only thing we can all say is you go girl. Thank you. Uh, (laughs) uh, Because you know Thank you for caring. Thank you for being crazy busy. Thank you, Katie. Thanks, it was great having Thank you. Thank you all
2: so much.
1: I hope you enjoyed that conversation with the incredible Katie Couric. Check out KatieCouric.com to find Katie's newsletter, podcast, and more. Our top takeaways? First, we need more women in leadership positions at the major media outlets. As Katie says, a woman's perspective can balance the way stories are told and can help eliminate the unconscious bias that often creeps into reporting. Second, we need to become more aware of this unconscious bias so that we can recognize it and address it. Lastly, although women are half the population, women's voices are still underrepresented in media. We at Seneca Women are committed to amplifying women's voices as we know that progress for women is progress for all. You're listening to Seneca Women, conversations on power and purpose, a podcast brought to you by the Seneca Women Podcast Network with support from founding partner PG. If you like this podcast, please subscribe, tell your friends, and rate us on Apple Podcasts. For more information on Seneca Women, follow us on social media, visit our website, and check out the Seneca Women app free in the App Store. Have a great week.